Let's start with this quote this morning. A sermon without Christ as its beginning, middle, and end is a mistake in, in conception and a crime in execution. I think I've told this before. Uh, at one church I was in, I think it was Lapeer, for a long time they had a little thing right here. The, the pulpit was a little higher and it, it just had that passage, Sirs, we would see Jesus. I think it's uh, when the Greeks come to Philip and they want it, Sirs, we would see Jesus. The whole point of this pulpit, as long as I'm here and you're in agreement, is to honor and exalt Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to do today, which is the great thing about going through the Gospels is because he is front and center. Usually, my, I don't know if you would call it a technique for preparing a sermon, is I just kind of write down a bunch of things, take a bunch of information, and Friday morning I met Tim Hortons writing. And I was just struck by, I was thinking about this hymn we just sang, the gospel, seeing the gospel in Luke 18, thinking about the gospel. I was struck by all the people that came in and the gratefulness I had that the Lord had revealed the gospel to me. Uh, that I have been chosen by God to understand its message. And if you have, you ought to be so appreciative of that today. Because if you remember what we just read, and we're not going to read the whole thing again, but there are people throughout Luke 18 that did not grasp the gospel message from the Pharisee who trusted in himself to the disciples who became indignant when the children came to Christ to the rich ruler who was confused and self-reliant to the 12 who at the very end of our reading, verse 34, did not grasp what was said about Christ and his sacrifice. And for some unknown reason, God in his mercy and grace has chosen to set his love on me. I think about that hymn we sing. To set his love on me, on me, in spite of me. Not because of me. In spite of me, he loved me. To turn me from serving idols, 1 Thessalonians 1, to serve the true and living God. What a message we have to take to the world and what a burden it should be upon us for all who claim to know Christ, a burden to share this message with others. And I'm reflecting on why is this message so difficult to grasp and difficult to accept, even from our passage today, and yet crowds of people at Tim Hortons from, from 8 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. are just walking through, and, and from my perspective, the vast majority of them probably do not know Christ. Why is it tough to receive? Well, they are blinded two times. They are blinded by their own sin, blinded by Satan, the God of this age. They love darkness because their deeds are evil. Of course, the sovereignty of the grace of God plays the most important role. They have a desire for personal autonomy. They want to make their own decisions in life. And there's one more. And that is that we live in a works-based society. I'm going to say this several times today. We live in a I earn it, I deserve it, society. I, we, I earn it, I deserve it, mentality. Even watching the people come through Tim Hortons, I felt there were, they were categorized into groups of people who felt like they deserved things. Now, this, I'm putting these thoughts into their mind, but, I, but the examples of the people before me this week lead to those different groups of people. For instance, someone walked in, Oakland University on their shirt, Oakland University, and we have some Oakland University grads, nothing about, but I'm saying some people can put their stock in their education. 
I deserve this job because I have this personal degree. You see what I'm doing? I'm not saying that the guy wearing the Oakland shirt was thinking that, but, but this is indicative of our, of our society. I have knowledge. I have a degree. I've earned it. I deserve it. A guy walked in, a fireman. Here's a hero, an example to our society, a model to our community, a selfless person. What he does, he doubt deserves things. Someone walked in with a Ford t-shirt, wearing the Ford lanyard, a high-up executive maybe. You know, I've made it in the business world. Of course, there were a lot of good-looking people there. I'm sure this is what they thought when they looked at me. Good-looking or wealthy people, right? I'm I'm basing my my earn-it-deserve-it mentality on my looks or on my wealth. In, in, in all of those different categories, based on, based on whether it's an asset that the God, has, God has blessed me with or a thing that I've achieved, the mindset of the world is I deserve what I get because I've earned it. And when we transition this over to the gospel, that just blows people's minds. Because as you know, the majority of the world's religion I mean, every one of the world's religions, aside from Christianity, is the earn it, deserve it mentality. Did you agree? Earn it, deserve it. I deserve eternal life because of something that I've done or because of the person that I am. The gospel is completely antithetical to that. Christ earned it, and we do not deserve it. That is the heart of the gospel. It is not something that we do. It is what someone else has done. We must be completely dependent on Christ's work. This is difficult for others to grasp. I gave the illustration of people walking in the restaurant, but we see the illustration in the Scripture. The Pharisee who trusted in himself. The little children who came to Christ. Well, what do they have to offer? What have they earned to deserve the rabbi's attention? And then, of course, the rich ruler asks the unbelievably arrogant question in verse uh, 18, what must I do? What must I do? Think about it. You should write that down. It's an earn it, deserve it mentality. When we think about giving the gospel, this is one of the paradigms of society that we will come smack into. That's what St. Clement's teaches. Right? That's, that's what the majority of false religions teach. I'd say the overwhelming majority, perhaps all. So our theme for today, we sang about it. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. My worth is not in what I own or the strength of my flesh and bone. It's not in skill or name. It's, I will not boast in wealth or might. There was a purpose for our singing these hymns this morning. Our theme today is for everyone to accept and rejoice in all that Christ has done to earn our salvation by his substitutionary death and his resurrection from the grave. Now look in Luke here. There's no, uh, Luke is a master historian, and he puts together his material in a way that makes sense. And if you see verse 14, this is really at the heart of all of chapter 18. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, but this is the final phrase we really want. Here's the category of people. There are two. There are always two categories in the Bible. I mention this a lot. Sheep, goats, wicked, right, uh, righteous, tares, wheat, so on and so forth. You have the people who exalt themselves, they will be humbled. And you have the people who humble themselves, they will be exalted. I exalt myself. 
because I have education, wealth, prosperity, good looks, achievements, job, hero, all those things I mentioned. I exalt myself. I deserve, or whether it's works or ceremony or whatever people are trusting in, versus those who humble themselves and say we have nothing, that person will be exalted. So there's three basic sections we want to work with through today. We got the little children, we got the rich ruler, and then we got the work of Christ. We're just that, that's a horrible outline, but that's where we're going to go. The little children, the rich ruler, and then the work of Christ. That's that's how we're going to go. Let's start with the little children. Again, we've read it all, 15 to 17, and this is a very familiar uh, story, even to children. Suffer the little children to come unto me. We've heard that all our lives. And what we see here is not unusual in these days. I'm talking about the scripture days. That is, people bringing their children to the rabbi to have the rabbi bless them. To speak a word of blessing and to perhaps even pray for these children. Now the parallel passage, this story is found also in Matthew and Mark. The parallel passages say children, but you notice Luke, the intellectual doctor, actually uses the word brephos, infants. Babies, verse number 15. They were even bringing babies to him. So most likely we have babies all the way up to 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 years old, as the other passages say, children. And isn't this a wonderful testimony of the character of Jesus Christ that people felt like they should bring their babies and children unto him? And the tense here suggests that this is an ongoing, customary, reoccurring situation. They are constantly, continually bringing they were doing that, and this happens to be an instance where the disciple says, hey, stop that. What did these people want from the Lord? It says in the passage, they brought them that he might, purpose of touching them, touching them. To place his hands on them. Frequently, this is done to convey a blessing to others and would be a ritual well-known in Israel history. In fact, if you know your Bibles, it's very familiar. You think of Isaac and the conniving son Jacob who desired his father's blessing, dressed up in Esau clothes, put, put fur on him, you know, and tricked him. And, he, and his father laid his hands on him and gave him a blessing. Esau came in later, he got the blessing. And then maybe even more well-known is Jacob. When he was dying, all the sons came in and they all received the touch and the blessing. This is, this is a, a specifically uh, Israeli-type ceremony, and it would be very well known. So they're bringing their children to Jesus that he might not just touch them, pat them on the head, but to provide them some sort of blessing. Parallel passage says to pray for them too, to pray for them. So it seems like the parents are bringing their children to Jesus for some sort of spiritual blessing. Perhaps it's very similar to our baby dedication. Now some have read into this that infant baptism for salvation is something that we should be practicing. There's nothing like that in here. It's the idea of we want the rabbi, this Jesus, to give a blessing to our children. Perhaps they might be faithful in their lives to the law. They might have a blessing upon their marriages, a, a prosperous spiritual life. Now, I'm sure some were bringing their children to Jesus out of this idea of routine or ceremony, and maybe some were really bringing their children to Jesus because they thought this was the Messiah. Passage doesn't tell us. In any case, Jesus welcomed this, blessing them, praying for them. So we grasp what's going on. Now, this particular ceremony, even though it was well-known in Israeli history, 
goes completely against the self-righteous Judaism that was prevalent in that day. How could these children achieve the self-righteousness that was required for God's favor? They didn't even know right from wrong at this point as brephos, as babies. They didn't understand. And Jesus is welcoming this. They, they don't know what have babies achieved to earn the blessing. And the disciples had bought into this thinking because the passage tells us they rebuked them, meaning the disciples were stopping the parents from coming. But Jesus called them to him and say, stop doing that. Let the children come to me and don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. The passage in, I think it's Mark, maybe Matthew, says he was indignant, a rare word used of Christ. He was angry, greatly displeased at this. Instead of dismissing and forbidding the children, Jesus actually commends them as heirs of the kingdom. Now think about this for a second. He says about them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the children, excuse me, belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus commends these infants, babies, as heirs of the kingdom. Now, let's make two quick applications. In the wider theme that we're talking about as far as being completely and totally dependent on Christ alone for salvation, let's make two quick applications about this, okay? First, application number one. Children are in the kingdom. Children are in the kingdom. In the parallel passage, it tells us that Jesus is doing it here, but in the parallel passage, it actually says Jesus calls those children up, gathers them into his lap, and blesses them. Now, there's a couple of important points regarding that. God never blesses those who are cursed. God never blesses those who are cursed. And think about what I mentioned. There are two categories of people. There would be the blessed and there would be the cursed. There would be people in the kingdom of God. There would be people not in the kingdom of God. There would be the wicked and the righteous, etc., etc. Jesus also never blessed anyone than a person who belonged in the kingdom. Okay? Notice what Jesus says. We've got to be real specific about what he says. Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such, to such, or he might say in your translation, to such as these. Now, Jesus doesn't say, let the children come to me uh, for these. He, he's not pointing to these specific children. He's pointing to the category of children. You see the difference there? He, you know, if I had a group of children on the stage and I said, uh, for to these you know, belong a pizza party today. Every child in the group and everyone out there would understand that I mean these specific children. But if I said something like, for to such as these or to such like these belong the pizza, I may not be specifically speaking of them, but I'm speaking of the category of children. The pizza party is for the category of these type of people. And what Jesus is saying is the kingdom is for this category of people. These, this category of babies and children belong in the kingdom. If he had said these, he'd have been saying something specific about these children. Maybe there's something inherent in them, these ones that were with him. 
Maybe they, because they were brought, because they were touched, because their parents had some faith or whatever. But he says, no, it is this category of, of people that will be in the kingdom. Jesus is kind of making this pronouncement here, not because they were baptized or had believing parents or were physically touched by Christ or because they were Jewish or because they'd been involved in some sort of ceremony, but he says, to such this category, little children have a place in the kingdom. Nothing is even said about faith. Right? Nothing is said that, that to such as these that might have faith. He's saying that children are under the sovereign and divine grace of God. The statement that Jesus is making, and, and we can be clear from other passages, but this isn't necessarily the most specific thing we want to talk about today, is that God's grace covers children. That children live in a conditional state of grace until they become accountable to the truth that they hear. Now, what is that age that they become accountable? There is, no, there is nothing in Scripture that tells us that. If we had a couple of babies in the nursery today, we could be convinced based on this passage as well as other teaching that Christ is saying, such as those belong in the kingdom. Not because they are innocent, not because they have exercised faith, not because they're here at the church, but because God's grace conditionally covers them until the moment they can make that decision for or against Christ, whenever that may be. To such belong the kingdom of God. Now, you see why this is a slap in the face to the earn it, deserve it category? What can a baby do to deserve it? Absolutely nothing. Babies... Um, I mean, how long would you say babies are completely dependent on someone else to take care of them? Some would mention maybe 17, 18 years old, right? They're completely dependent. We were down at a store uh, one day this week, and uh, a lady had a baby in the store. We were waiting for customer service or something, and the, and the lady, I mean, real little baby, real little. I, I mean, I don't know how to guess ages, but I would say less than two months for sure. Baby couldn't do anything, nothing. Mother picked it up, gave it some milk or bottle or whatever the baby was drinking and took care of the baby. Baby completely dependent. This is the key word, completely dependent. And, and this is perhaps why the disciples are rebuking them, perhaps why the Pharisees would rebuke these type of parents. Listen, these people haven't earned the right. And what could they do to earn the right since they have no understanding of righteousness, either right or wrong? And this kind of thinking uh, monopolizes our ideologies today, this earn it, deserve it. Not only are children in the kingdom, and we've had lessons on this before. We've talked about miscarried children, aborted children, babies that would die in infancy, maybe even up to 7, 8, 9, 10 years old. A lot of people say 12. There's no, I'm not going to say there's a biblical number. I think we can understand when children reach the age of when they can comprehend the gospel, which is why it's urgent for us to have a Grace Kids ministry, to talk to these children about the gospel at a young age so that they're walking into it, kind of ready to receive it as they become older. So I'm not saying it's this age, but we certainly can say with, with great uh, basis in the Scripture that infants and young children who would die go immediately into the presence of God because of the conditional grace that God has bestowed upon them. I think that's a great help and encouragement. A lot of times, I'm just stepping aside now because this is not what I intend to say, but a lot of times people like to complain about God killing all the Amalekites or the Canaanites or whatever, even smashing children. Well, those children, in a sense, are graced more than if they would have been let to live. 
I know that even, even uh, when you counsel individuals that have lost babies, the grief and terror that, that overcomes them certainly is, they're almost inconsolable, but praise God, those children, based on the authority of Scripture, will be in heaven. But not only that, and maybe more importantly for us, so if you've lost a baby, let that be an encouragement to you. I mean, let it be a real blessing. But application number two is not only that children are in the kingdom, but children also symbolize how to enter it. They symbolize how to enter it. Again, in the achievement, accomplished-based society that we live in and that Jesus was a part of, what did, this, what did the babies have to offer? Nothing. Remember that Jesus did not commend anything about or in the children. He just says, here's the two phrases that we're making these applications. Application number one comes from the phrase, to such belong the kingdom of God. Jesus is conferring, I mean, who has the authority to let somebody in the kingdom if not the king himself? And so the king himself says, these, to such like these belong the kingdom. And then the second phrase, if you do not receive the kingdom like a child, you can't enter it. We must enter it like a little child. And again, the key word that I keep repeating here is dependent, completely dependent on someone else's works. It's not our merits, right? What can a, chi- what can a child say when they desire something? I mean, a, a baby, they, they are completely dependent. They cry out for their food. They cry out for their parents to hold or walk them or whatever. They are completely dependent on the grace that the parents would provide. And this is, in a sense, what every person must do. Cry out to God completely dependent. Not providing a resume to God for why we deserve salvation. We enter on His merits, not ours. We, we enter on His achievements, not our accomplishments. Okay? I've said this before. Babies, to get what they want and, and as to, to come into the kingdom like a baby, we, we say we have no credits, we have no claim, we have no clout. That's why I began the way I did with the illustrations from Tim Hortons. Well, I work at Ford. Well, I'm wealthy. I'm, I'm a, a graduate. I have a master's degree from Oakland. Or uh, I, I'm a firefighter. I'm a hero to the community. All of those credits are nothing to God. Nothing. Now, do, the, do those certain people deserve things in society? Yes, because that's the way we live. But, but it, they do not deserve anything from Christ. They must push everything aside, like Paul in Philippians 3, and say, I do not want a righteousness of my own, but I am found in the righteousness of Christ because I count everything that I've achieved as what? Dung! No credits, no claims, no clout. Those who desire to enter the kingdom, and maybe this is you if you desire to do that, You must lay aside your own self-righteousness and receive for yourself by the sovereign grace of God the finished work of Christ alone. We cannot say things like, I deserved it because I grew up in a Christian home. Is it a privilege to grow up in a Christian home? Yes. But it does not guarantee someone's salvation. None of us deserve salvation. We like to point the finger at the wicked and complain about how they live, and almost maybe in a sense desire that God's judgment be poured out on them. We deserve that, folks. Andy does. And to act like a non-humble person, going back to, what was it, verse 14, you know, I deserve this, but you homosexuals don't, or you adulterers don't, you murderers don't. None of us deserve it. None of us. Well, I grew up in a Christian home and knew all the Iwana verses. I certainly... No, you didn't. you got to see yourself as the wicked, vile sinner that you are. 
and come to Christ and say, I don't have anything. I cast myself on your sovereign grace. Please save me. Okay? Those are the babies. Second section. So we've got three sections. The little children. Now let's move to the rich young ruler. Now, it's as if the Holy Spirit planned it this way, right? <laughs> it's as if the Holy Spirit, that's kind of a joke. As if the Holy Spirit planned it this way. He sandwiches, he sandwiches the right way between two wrong ways. If you look in your passage, you, you got the, the sandwich or the meat of the sandwich are these little children which demonstrate how to come to Christ. Completely what? Were you listening? Completely what? Starts with a D. Dependent, completely dependent on him. But, but it's sandwiched between two people that were wrong. So if you think about the ham or the peanut butter as the children, the right way to come is completely dependent. You have the sandwich. What's the top piece of bread in the sandwich? What's the story? It's the Pharisee who trusted in himself. And then you have the bottom of the sandwich, which is the rich ruler. See that? It's like the Holy Spirit planted. Like I said, this is the right way. Here's the wrong ways. The rich ruler comes to Christ the complete antithetical way that he's supposed to. He comes as a self-achiever, and he will then find himself outside of the kingdom. We have a man, according to verse uh, 19, is it, excuse me, 18, who is a ruler. Could be that he was a chief or a magistrate, either in the village or the synagogue. The passage doesn't specifically say. And he also is called down in verse number uh, 23, rich, prosperous. He lacks nothing. He is abounding in all things. This man has possessions and position. He has power. He has privilege. He has everything in his favor. I mean, everything's going right for this guy. He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. This guy's on top of the world, yet he is empty. He's empty because in the passage he realizes he does not have something. Eternal life. Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life, to inherit it? And at the end of the story, even though he is powerful and wealthy, he goes away extremely sad, verse 23. He is, that word means, surrounded by grief. I think the King James says he is very sorrowful. And his, self-sufficient, his self-sufficiency ends up being his eternal downfall. Now let's talk about six things about this guy. Three right things, three wrong things. I'll be real quick. Three right things... Three wrong things. Okay? Let's notice first what he got right. First of all, he had a right spirit. He had a right spirit. Now, the reason we can say that is because Mark chapter 10, 17, a parallel passage to this, states that the way he approached Jesus was that he ran and knelt. He ran and knelt before the Lord. It doesn't say it in Luke, but it does tell us that in Mark. As a ruler, perhaps, of the synagogue, this would be very embarrassing. For this ruler to come and bow before this rabbi who's already been kind of outed as a troublemaker. But he demonstrates his eagerness to approach this rabbi. His positive approach and his posture indicates a respect and perhaps even a willingness to respond to whatever this guy says. I mean, I'm not going to kneel before many people. He ran and kneeled to Christ. had the right spirit. Second, he had the right desire. What is it he wanted? He wanted eternal life. This is a wonderful thing. Even with all that he owns, he feels he is lacking something of the greatest importance. His donkeys or livestock or homes or 
uh, clothing, whatever it is that the wealthy would invest all their money in, was not satisfying him. He knew he needed eternal life, and he wants it. Right desire, isn't it? Great desire. It's a concern that many don't even express in this world. I can't imagine. Can you? People who think of their own immortality and eternal, uh, eternal destiny with, uh, with less foresight than a grocery trip or a vacation plans. We're talking about eternity. And he had that desire. I can't believe more aren't expressing that. I can't believe people aren't racing into churches around the globe saying this very question. Can you? I just, I can't believe it. Even if they're not after the right answer, people aren't even asking this question today. And you know why? Especially in America? Because they're self-sufficient. They have it all. I don't need Jesus. Jesus didn't help me get my boat. Jesus didn't help me become a, a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it is I am. Why do I need Jesus? But he is giving thought to eternity. Thirdly, he comes to the right person. He has the right spirit, the right desire, and he comes to the right person, doesn't he? He goes right to the Lord. Think about this man's torture in hell this very moment. He stood before our Lord, asked the right question with the right spirit, and walked away. He refused to give up things for Christ. He refused to admit his sin. Now he's suffering, lest the story shifted a different way later in life, which I, I don't know if the scripture would tell us that or not. It's one thing, I think there will be torture in hell for people who have sat in Bible-believing churches and heard the gospel and constantly rejected it. And they'll, say, they'll wish for one more Sunday. They'll wish for one more Sunday. The rest of eternity, the gnashing of teeth. One more Sunday, one more Sunday. I would respond, if, I would respond one more chance, and no more chances are given. But this guy, standing, actually kneeling before the Lord. Isn't that powerfully tragic? I mean, I, this is real. Real life. People like this in our community. Oh, that God would give us a burden to share that gospel with them. He's coming to the right source, the right person. If you're going to ask a question like this, don't go to Oprah, don't go to Joel, don't go to the bookstore. Go to the Word of God, to Christ alone. Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There is one God and one mediator between God and sinful man. That is the man Christ Jesus. Christ the only hope, the only way, your only peace. To go to someone else on the issue, to listen to the Pope, is to put yourself in eternal danger. Isn't it sad? It comes with the right spirit, right desire, right person. Those are the right things. But he also had some wrong things. First, I would say he had a wrong view of things, a wrong view of things. First of all, he had a wrong view of Jesus, right? What does he call him? Let me take a sip. What does he call him? Teacher, good teacher. Is that true? Sure it is. But it falls short of the whole truth. This is what many think of our Lord. He's an example, right? You even hear it on the news. Jesus would help the immigrants. Jesus would help the poor. Jesus would help the homeless. And he probably would, no question. But people bring Jesus into their arguments because he's the good moral teacher. He's the influence. He is more than that. He tries to correct, Jesus does, this man, by saying, why do you call me good? 
No one is good but God alone. What is Jesus really saying? You're looking at God. You're looking at God. He points this ruler to his own deity. He had a wrong view of Jesus. Come back to that in a minute. He also had a wrong view of salvation. What must I do? What must I do? Again, to repeat, this is the earn it, deserve it category. Can I pay? Can I donate? Can I work? What can I do? What can I do? And isn't it funny that even when Christ tells him what to do, he won't do it? A wrong view of salvation. Think of the arrogance of that statement. What can I bring to you to demonstrate that I am worthy of eternal life, and yet this is what society does. Look at my tax returns. Look at my philanthropy. Look at my church attendance. Look at my baptism record. Look at my string of good works. Uh, my, my, my healthy marriage. Right? Look at, look at my, uh, my uh, donation to the community. Time served in the community. Now give me eternal life. <laughs> it's, just, it's just incredibly arrogant to think that. There's no question that Luke desires us to see this in the context of the children. Because the children can't say, what can I do? They can't even speak. They're babies. They are completely dependent. And this guy wants to be dependent on himself, what he does, just like the Pharisee at the temple who says, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. And Jesus tells that parable to the people who were trusting in themselves. In a wrong view of Jesus, a wrong view of salvation, and a wrong view of sin and self. A wrong view of sin and self. Jesus tries so hard. Now listen, if a person came in or you afterwards said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, the Christians in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s would say, repeat after me. Dear Lord, dear Lord. I now confirm upon you salvation. Jesus doesn't do that. It's a warning to us. Be more diagnostic in our understanding of the, of the Scriptures. I believe there would be many people who desire eternal life, and I've prayed with some in this building that under, under a certain level of conviction will do something to try to earn eternal life, and then they're gone because they didn't really understand what a commitment to Christ was. And Jesus is trying to correct this, saying... He actually is steering him here. Why do you call me good, 19? No one's good but God. You know the commandments. <laughs> he, he lists specifically the second tablet, which is the commandments regarding our neighbor. And the man, verse 21, all these I have kept from my youth. Here he is trying to present to Christ a record of good deeds. Jesus is hoping that the ruler would admit a couple of things that he would not admit. He wanted to admit, Jesus, you are God, and about me, I'm no good. Those are two things that, that the guy had to admit. You are God, I'm no good. I'm sinful. Why didn't this guy say, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments, etc. Do not do these things. In verse 21, you wish he had said, I've already failed. I can't do that. And oh, then the Lord would say, but I will pay that. He didn't say that. He is pointing to his achievements. Think about this. He came to the right person. He came with the right spirit, with the right desires, 
but the wrong perspective, this emptiness and longing that he had. And he thought that he could achieve it by doing something. What Jesus is trying to make the person understand, and this is important when we give the gospel, is people must be lost before they're found. People must recognize their guilt before they see a need for grace. Right? They, they must be presented with the, the bad news before they're presented with the good news. They must have an understanding that they're a sinner. This is why Christ did not even expose himself as the Messiah to this guy. He later is going to share about the Son of Man's suffering in just a minute, but he doesn't expose that because this guy could not even get over hurdle number one, which is, I am a sinner. And if you cannot get the person to admit that, Right, completely hopeless, not just, yeah, I've done a couple things, but completely hopeless and in complete need of someone else's record, then Jesus isn't going to give him the gospel because he's got to understand that sin before he will ever understand salvation. In order to be a follower of Christ, we have to admit our nothingness before him, our sinfulness before the holy God-man, the Lord Jesus. Jesus tries one other tactic. Well, okay, I mean, isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't laugh at the guy or say, come on, Jim. I'm sure that's what his name he says. One thing you still lack. Okay, good, good for you. One more thing and you can have eternal life. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Jesus says, substitute me in place of your possessions. Take me, give up your stuff. What do you imagine Jesus is trying to get him to do? You don't have to sell all you have to come to Christ. What is Jesus trying to get him to do? Jesus, I think, is hoping that he would admit his idolatry. Jesus, I think, is hoping that he would admit his selfishness, his greed, his lack of love for others. Sell all this and distribute to the poor. He, he's trying to get him still to see his sinfulness, his lack of love for his neighbor, his idolatry and greed, as I mentioned. But however, he loved things more than people, and he chose possessions over Christ. He was unwilling to admit his own sin and give up all to follow Christ. And he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he becomes sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And I think the reason he states that it is difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God is because it is hard for a rich man to admit that they have a need. Babies have no problem admitting they have need. Ha, 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 Right? have a need. Those of you who have babies, you understand that. If it's three in the morning, they admit they have a need. Doesn't matter. The rich will not admit their needs to be dependent on someone else. It'd be easier to stick a camel through a needle. Those who hear it say, well, who can be saved then? And Jesus responds with this wonderful truth. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And once again, here we see the doctrine of divine, sovereign grace in salvation. That God can do this. God can draw a rich man to himself and save him. 
Isn't it interesting that our Lord was standing before this rich man. The rich man asked him about the gospel. Jesus tried to start with the the first truth of the gospel, which is admitting our sin. The guy didn't do it. Jesus doesn't chase him. Jesus doesn't beg him. Jesus doesn't plead with him. I find that fascinating. He presented that truth to the guy's conscience, and it was rejected. And he will bear the punishment for that for eternity. Think about that when we give the gospel. Then Peter opens his mouth. Good old Peter. (laughs) Always saying something embarrassing. We've done that, Lord. (laughs) Right? We we have left everything. See? Isn't that? Peter is just. You know, sometimes you don't get him and you think, well, I'm glad the Bible isn't about me because the things I would say would be, you know, for 2,000 years, everyone examining and ridiculing. But I think it's a, I think it's a, a fascinating, uh, what Jesus is going to answer here is going to be so special for those of us who have done that. So, so here you have the rich young ruler who will not do what Jesus says, will not admit his sin, will not give up his things, and he goes away sad. And Peter says, hey, we've done that, Lord. Hey, we've left everything to follow you. And you notice Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. Look what he says. This is, this is great. Amen, or truly, I say to you, there is no one who has done the things that I was asking this guy to do, leave houses, leave fields, leave children, leave whatever, for my sake, who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. What Jesus is saying is that decision that you have made, Peter, and there is no one who has made that decision like you have made, to give up all for me, to lose their life, to find it. There is no one who will not be rewarded both in this life and the life to come. I love that promise from Christ. Joy and peace is the abundant treasure of the followers of Christ because Christ Himself is our possession. The boat or Christ, the bank account, or Christ, the family, or Christ, reputation, or Christ, position, or Christ. Would anyone take the first of those things over Christ? When Christ says, if you turn your back on all that stuff, oh, you will have John 10.10, the abundant life. No one is going to regret that decision. See the difference? Guy walking away, exceedingly sorrowful, surrounded with grief. Peter and the others, you got a great thing coming. Thanks alone to Christ. Praise God. If you have left it all for Christ, you will receive, this is not a prosperity gospel, you will be a blessed person. Hudson Taylor, who gave his life for Christ in China, said, I never made a sacrifice. I mean, how can you call this a trade-off? Look what I gave up. I gave up things. I gave up people. And I received Christ. There is no trade-off. Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, let's look at the last thing. Third section. The work of Christ. Yeah, the little children, rich ruler, work of Christ. Now, I'll remind you of the sermon of the Spurgeon quote I said at the beginning. If Christ is not exalted at the beginning, end, and middle and end of a sermon, 
It is a mistake in conception and a crime in execution. So he takes the 12 now, and he says to them, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Folks, verse 31 to 33 is the hope of salvation for you and me. It's the hope of salvation. What Christ did is your only plea, your only argument. Here's our Lord walking in to his own death, says to his disciples, we are going there and I am going to suffer. I am going to be spat on. I am going to be mocked for Andy and for the for those who would receive him. This was, number one, predicted. It was already written about the Son of Man by the prophets. Think about the servant songs and the suffering Savior, which Derek led us in responsive reading this morning. From Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. My sin in his body on the tree, the just one for the unjust one, that he might bring me to God. The salvation that Christ provided is my only salvation. I have nothing. I am nothing without him. I rest completely and totally dependent on the grace and work of Christ predicted by the prophets. Punished in his own body. Mocked and beard pulled out for my sin the way I deserve to be shamefully treated. Flogged with that cat of nine tails, ripping the olive-skinned back of my Lord to the organs, to the bone. Carrying that cross and put to death for my sin. Killed, not for his own sin, but for mine and then powerfully rising again. Number one, it was predicted. Number two, he was punished. Number three, he was put to death. Number four, he was powerfully resurrected, proving that God accepted his sacrifice. But they understood, verse 34, none of this because it was hidden from them. Now later, the 12 would grasp that, all but Judas. But it was hidden from them. And one day when I was 12 years old, though the gospel had been hidden from me for years and years, I sat in a service right down there and heard the message of the gospel and gave my heart to Jesus Christ. And it was his sovereign grace that chose me from the foundation of the world to set his love on me, to, to, 
to convict me to respond to that, to lay aside any works that I have done or any achievements that I can make and to give myself completely and totally dependent to the work of Christ and He gloriously saved me. And if I were to die this moment, I would go to be in the presence of God forever, not because of what I've achieved, but because of what He has done. Folks, what should be our application for this? I hope you're already sensing that. Can I give you three thoughts? The first and most important, of course, is to receive this gospel. Receive it. I don't pretend to know everybody's heart. I don't know who really knows Christ. I don't know whom this message is hitting uh, deeply. And for some, it's just noise. But the opportunity for you today is to respond receive the gospel to simply exercise faith and repentance in Jesus Christ and accept his sacrifice. I, I mean, I, I don't want to push that any further. I've laid the gospel before you as clearly as I can. So it's up to you to receive it. Second, rejoice in it. Christian, doesn't this make your heart just sore? I mean, amen or not? I mean, praise God. And then you must respond to it, Christian. You must respond to it by letting the gospel completely and totally change your life, every aspect of it. You must respond to it by sharing it with other people. You must respond to it by reflecting upon it often. Receive it. Rejoice in it. Respond to it. It's no coincidence that, I don't know, about 300 years ago today, August 11, 1778, August Top Lady, Augustus Top Lady, hymn writer, died. And uh, his words are still being sung today. We sing a couple of his hymns. Um, and the one that I want to close with today is, uh, is perfectly applied to our message Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? None for sin could atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. It's a beautiful. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, come to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Leah, why don't you come? And would you please sing with great joy if he is your rock of ages? And if he is not, I pray that the Spirit of God would just smite you with, with firm conviction that you must accept his sacrifice alone to pay your debt. How great is it that the Lord sovereignly had this guy's death line up with our message today? How beautiful and sovereign uh, plan of God that this is a small thing for us to think about 
the little children being completely dependent on God and be able to sing this man's great biblical truth, stand with me and sing it and rejoice with what God has done. Rock of Ages is page number 11 if you need the words there.